This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we begin with Chloe Watlington, who has a new article in LA Taco called The Big Quit of 2021, as told by women of color in Los Angeles. The backdrop is what has happened to work during the pandemic. Month after month, workers have been quitting jobs at unprecedented levels for a variety of reasons, including lack of childcare, burnout from toxic working conditions, and more. We talked to Chloe to get the big picture. Who is quitting? Which jobs are they quitting? Why are they quitting? And what are the long-term implications for the future of work and working conditions? We then turn to Chile. Presidential elections are on for November 21st, and these elections come on the heels of huge gains for the left. The massive social protest movement of October 2019 led to the demand for a new constitution to replace the Pinochet constitution and to convene a constituent assembly. And the delegates came from feminist and environmental organizations and representatives of indigenous or original peoples. Oscar Mendoza joins us to describe these developments. The left candidate Boric is now being challenged from the very far-right pro-Pinochetista candidate cast. We're going to get the story from Oscar Mendoza when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and really pleased to have Chloe Wadlington back with us. We talked to her last, I think, about Puerto Rico and debt and all these other sorts of things. But now, Chloe has written this amazing new piece in L.A. Taco, which you can find at L.A. with a dot after each one, lataco.com. And it's called The Big Quit of 2021, as told by women of color in Los Angeles. Chloe is a Los Angeles writer, and her journalism can be found in all the right places, including The Baffler, Teen Vogue, Commune Magazine, and The New Republic, and L.A. Taco. And I'm really pleased to have Chloe back after such a long time. Welcome, Chloe. Thanks, Susie. Pleased to be here. So you spoke to, I think, four women or five about their experiences in quitting, And then you wrote this piece, and what we're going to do is look at what your findings were. But the backdrop, which I want to just begin with, is what happened to work during the pandemic. So the monthly jobs reports show literally month after month of workers quitting at unprecedented levels and for a variety of reasons. So we have lack of childcare, which has been very prominent, bad to toxic working conditions, that's almost nothing new, that include low pay, long hours with few or no benefits, employers who increasingly surveil every motion and every step, and of course, labor law in the United States, which makes it incredibly difficult for workers to fight back by winning union drives. And even where the law does protect workers, employers still have a free hand, in other words, flout the law. So one outcome that is not really part of this article, but that we're going to maybe talk about has been a mini strike wave or what has been called striketober. And another, of course, and this is the substance, and that is the great resignation or the big quit. And I found on the subreddit anti-work, the tagline is 
unemployment for all, not just the rich. Now, just let that linger for a second, that new demand, not one you would think about. And it's a very popular forum, and it's full of screenshots of people telling off bad bosses and asserting their worth as workers. And some of the ones that get the most likes or whatever the equivalent is are screenshots of employees talking back to ridiculous employer demands. And they provide a literally a very clear illustration of why these workers want to quit. And so now we have, perhaps because of social media and all of these sites, we have a forum where workers can vent, and they do. And so the other side of that is that in 2021, the approval of labor unions has surged. It's been large for a long time, even though that isn't reflected in the levels of unionization, which have been going down. But now it's 68% of all Americans, and that's the highest rate in 50 years. Now we are seeing unionization at, you know, we saw the failed drive in Bessemer of Amazon, but we're seeing a unionization effort at Starbucks, at HelloFresh. And as I mentioned earlier, the Striketober has 100,000 workers in various industries on strikes at John Deere, at Kellogg, at the IATSE TV and film industry workers who almost went on strike. And so that's kind of what we're seeing is this giant new trend where there's not only people are quitting, but there are also those who don't quit are fighting back. Now, it isn't, of course, the labor upsurge of the 30s yet, but still what we're seeing is that month after month, the available jobs out there are hovering around 10 million. So we're going to look at with Chloe the larger question about why people are quitting, who is quitting, and what her takeaway is. So let me just one more time say that the article is at LA Taco and it is called The Big Quit of 2021. And, you know, one big difference, I would say, you know, is that from the beginning of the pandemic, we started to talk about essential workers and essential workers didn't turn out just to be doctors and lawyers, uh, although doctors are very essential. But nurses and janitors and food service workers and drivers and all the rest of them were all deemed essential. But then we found out they're working without health care. They're working without benefits. But now they are able to command better wages. So that's one side of the equation. And the other side is those who work and those who can't work. And I guess maybe the last thing to say before we move into this interview and this very long introduction is that we've passed the 750,000 mark of those who have died in the United States in this pandemic. And you can think of that as three quarters of a million, maybe not all of them were in the workforce, but that's a shrunken workforce as well. So let's begin then, Chloe, with your definition of what this is, the great resignation, and uh, maybe you can explain why people are leaving. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Susie. That was a great introduction to the phenomenon. And just to give a little bit of backstory, too, it's something that we first noticed in April when it reached almost 4 million quitters. And that's like a very significant number. And there was a lot of reporting on it. But what was maybe more surprising is that it just kept rising. So by August, you had 4.3 million. And then in September, you had 4.4 million people, which is the largest amount of quitters ever on record. We haven't been recording this for more than a few decades, but it's still pretty pretty significant that it's the highest number of quitters we've ever seen. That's about like 75 unemployed people for every 100 jobs. And women are quitting at twice the rate of men. That's one of the reasons why I chose to interview all women. I also think women have a, a kind of more interesting description of freedom and what they needed and wanted from quitting. 
And you also see about 40% of the quitters being like this are anti-work. So Reddit slogan suggests people in low-wage sectors who work customer-facing jobs who didn't get the chance to bake sourdough bread and start a new business during the pandemic like other people did. And now they want a little slice of that of that time and that luxury. So that's like retail workers, warehouse workers, healthcare sector, hospitality, hotels, restaurants, bars. And we just got like last week, there was a new job report. There was a lot of reporting around it saying like, look at this great recovery. We've created 531,000 jobs. The executive of the Bank of America said like, great, okay, the world is normalizing. The New York Times said that this job report offers us like a much brighter picture of the U.S. economy. But if you actually kind of dig into that job report, we're seeing the same markers of inequality that we had before. So it's not necessarily a recovery. Our unemployment levels are still higher than pre-COVID. Men's unemployment declined while women stagnated. And that happened earlier in the Great Resignation too. There was an uptick in jobs that looked hopeful, but they mostly went to men. And you also saw a little little decline in unemployment from people of color. And the labor force participation rate stayed at exactly 61.6%, which it's been at for almost a year now. That means, you know, 40% of Americans just aren't looking for work. They don't want work. And another subcategory of that is like discouragement. And discouragement didn't go down in that job report. People who are long-term unemployed people looking for jobs and don't feel like they're going to get the jobs still feel that way they still feel discouraged and I think that more than a speedy recovery is what's significant about those 531 jobs. Okay so this is a really good overview Chloe Wallington of the I guess subjective reasons in a way but but they're both subjective and objective because you mentioned that unlike those who could work remotely or work from home or who were just at home and rediscovering baking and all that kind of stuff that that happened uh, these were people who couldn't do that but now have I guess a little bit more leeway in some ways that's but are still discouraged so is there anything else that you would line up in the subjective factor and then I want to ask you just coming out of that, what's different this time in terms of, because isn't it the case that people always complain about their jobs and hate their jobs <laughs> and feel that the conditions are awful? So what's new that really mm-hmm. makes them move from hating and complaining to actually quitting? Yeah, what is new? Well, the person who dubbed the Great Resignation, his name is Anthony Klotz, and he's a business school professor from Texas, and he gave four reasons. And the first one's very familiar. We all know burnout, especially for women who do two-thirds of the care work, unpaid care work. They worked a lot of customer-facing jobs. They weren't the ones who lost jobs in the earlier recession, but they were the ones when men and women's unemployment was actually pretty level. Now you see a huge drop in women's unemployment while men stays the same because of this burnout. So that's one reason. The next is the pandemic epiphany, this idea that people went through the pandemic, looked at their lives, saw that it was out of their hands, saw that they had little control over it, saw their family members die, and took a moment to say, is this what I want? for my life? Am I where I want to be at this moment in my life? Am I getting from work, meaning, power, love? 
dignity? And the answer for a lot of those people was no. So that's one reason. Another reason is insecurity. There was insecurity during the pandemic that made this certain group of workers, this 40% of frontline or essential workers, hold on to their jobs and not quit them. So you have a lot of quitting these days, right? People generally work more careers this generation than they did in the last one. So because they work more jobs, they quit more jobs. Mm. And so there already is higher rates of quitting. And that's what this professor business has been studying for a long time. But now you got this phenomenon where people held on to their jobs who would have normally quit it. And then they all quit them all at once. And I'll get back to why I think that that's one place where we, we differ is in that definition of insecurity and in the people's response to it that are actually quitting and that I actually talked to. And then the other place where I think Klotz and I have a difference of opinion is his definition for freedom. So he says, similarly to the pandemic forcing people to stay in a sense of security, it forced them into a point of freedom where they were home. They were home with their families. They were kind of tasting a little bit of autonomy. And then when things opened up, they didn't want to go back. So they bolted and they quit their job. Now, I think that the question of insecurity is a little bit suspicious. I mean, are we in a moment of stability? I I don't see very many signs of stability, especially for low wage workers. The eviction moratorium just ended. All the emergency unemployment benefits were cut off in California. So that's 2.2 million of the 3 million people who received unemployment just last week don't get it anymore. You have an expiration of pandemic relief programs. I don't see any stimulus checks coming down the gates. And then in Los Angeles specifically, you have signs of insecurity that are really tragic, like Latinos and Blacks experience the most food insecurity. And a big part of that is that prices are skyrocketing. The price to live is much higher. Energy, gas, food, all the basics. So I wanted to sort of stop there and ask because, you know, one of the mantras from the right has been that, you know, there's this labor glut shortage of jobs because of these generous subsidies that the government are handout and that, you know, even when we were in the most extreme form of lockdown, which was necessary for public health, they were saying it's going to make workers lazy and they won't go back to work. But almost all of the studies that have come out show that that's not really what's going on. And I guess I wanted to add this in a way because you, you started to say it and I want to just go a little bit further with it. Okay. So one of the reasons is that they, perhaps had a cushion for a while, but that cushion is gone, as you've just said. And the other one, you know, is this sort of nebulous conception of freedom, but which, you know, you said the way I prefer it is that autonomy, not having somebody right Mm -hmm. over you. But then on the other hand, does that mean that post-subsidy, and we're only just coming into this period, that somehow people figured out how to live with less and have decided the risk is worth it? Or is it because the jobs that are out there are offering more now because there are more jobs out there? Do you have any sort of indication at that level? Yeah, it could be that people saved a lot of money or that their stimulus gave them more of a a rental income than they were used to. And they sort of saved that wisely. I did talk to some people who referenced stuff like that. But I actually think it's more just like a moment where we're embracing insecurity and and risking ourselves in it and saying like, we're going to quit our job anyway. Like we know that they're not going to take care of us. They proved that they weren't going to take care of us. 
and they're going to continue to not take care of us. So why should I demean myself to a boss if that is the only outcome I'm going to get? And I think that's really interesting because it's kind of like capitalist indoctrination. What is it except to tell you, like, just hold on. Things are going to get better. We're going to, you're going to get the American dream if you just stay in the labor force and use your grit to get through it. And this is people saying like, no, actually, like I would much rather lose everything than fall asleep on the couch every night and spend no time with my family and like be made to handle all the problems that the state and the bosses should be handling in the workforce and like go to work every day and have both coworkers and customers and bosses treat you inhumanely. Um, and that's like why I think resignation just isn't really the right word for it because when you resign yourself to something, you like accept something undesirable and say like, well, this is my lot. I'm stuck with this. But when you quit, you say, I refuse. I refuse to accept this. I love that. I love that distinction. And I, you know, I didn't think to ask you that before, but it occurred to me as you were speaking, and maybe this would be a good time to talk just, you know, to bring in one of one of the people you talked to, I think it was when you look at the reasons for the quit. And I think you put it, it's an affirmation of life, the return of sexual desire. You know, I interviewed the president of Yahtzee Local 871, and uh, she talked about how people for the first time were able to walk their children to school. You mm-hmm. know, all of a sudden seeing it during the pandemic lockdown, that, you know, there is another life out there. So maybe you could just bring in an example or two. Yeah, sure. So I start off my article talking to Claudia, who was a private school teacher in West Hollywood. She had a really long commute every day from East LA and often worked through her lunch breaks. A lot of the department meetings were held during lunch. She had to work through the pandemic on Zoom And also the bosses made them go back before the vaccine was even rolled out. So she was really feeling this burnout stuff, like 100%. And she she and I were talking for a while. And then finally she said, you know what really came back is my sexual desire, my sexual drive. And just like this embracing of insecurity, I feel like what is an increase in sexual drive except the refusal to like feel bad and to want to feel good and to want to change the driving force behind how you live and how you survive and like bring more vital energy to that than you do previously. And I just don't think that when people feel that, and especially when they can relate it back to their workplace and they know it's coming from work, it's not their relationship. It's not who they are. It's not their mental health imbalance. It's work. Work took away my sexual drive and I got it back. Like to put it in plain speak, once you have good sex. Do you think you're like, you know what I really want? Some mediocre sex. No, no one goes backwards once they have an increase in desire. It is only going to go up from here. And I found this part in everyone I talked to. It was something about their psyche, their body, like having wanting to have more control over their, their mind and the way that they felt and that it was like this bodily autonomy. And in the context we've had in the last few years of Me Too and gendered inequality in the workplace, I think this is just another sign that people's relationship to themselves in relationship to work is shifting in a big way that will be harder for capital to recover from than if it was just about wages or, um, I don't know, working conditions or something. 
And you can read about these individual stories at Chloe Watlington's article at LATaco.com, which is called The Big Quit. But Chloe, as you were saying that, you have to think as well about the sort of extraordinary circumstances that brought this about at this time, which was, you know, the lockdown and the pandemic. And it had huge consequences, as you are saying, for the job market. And now we're not done with the pandemic, but people are slowly coming back to work. And all of a sudden, all at once, there's this gigantic demand for labor. And so everywhere you see that there's labor shortages. And so at the same time, in this, to, in order, I mean, I'm hearing amazing things from people about what, what employers are offering in order to entice people back to work. And yet people are saying, well, wait, what are the conditions more than just the pay, right? And I think, you know, I have a friend whose son just graduated from university and went to work in some restaurant and he was working in the back. And in order to keep the workers who were quitting like crazy, the boss offered them all an all expense paid uh, vacation in Cancun for those who had a passport and for those who didn't in Miami, all expense paid, just stay on the job. And that's like, wow, I never heard about that in America you know, <laughs> ever. And so, so the questions, I guess, are what's going on in the job market, even with driving up pay? And is this just because of the pandemic or is this something, you know, bigger? at this moment. Yeah, I mean, it's like the pandemic is obviously where we get these supply chain crises that are lowering demand and production and through that you get labor intensification and so less workers are doing more of the work and that's having an impact on the great resignation and people wanting to leave their work. And it also probably will have some impact in how bosses treat their workers and But if you look at the jobs report, I think the wages or the earnings went up maybe like 11% during this. So I don't know if that's significant or not. It doesn't seem particularly significant. And also work hours went down very incrementally, like a 0.4% or 0.4% or something like this. And I think there will be these incentives to come back, but they won't be the things that people are asking for. At least they're not addressing the source, what my sources were asking for in terms of their demand for more power over their time. These are happening in industries like tech, where you see Bumble, feminist dating app, where the woman has to respond first. When the great resignation happened, the news came out, they gave everyone a week off. They're like, okay, everyone go chill out. And then Kickstarter said that they were going to do a four-day work week. Now, Kickstarter and Bumble are a certain kind of workforce, right? It's a very highly educated workforce. Kickstarter had a huge unionization campaign last year and so they're scared and they know they have to do something but do i see that happening on a national scale for low-wage workers i think it's really unlikely and we know that like a lot of the jobs that were made in this recovery last month i think the highest amount were leisure and hospitality so are those just people who then are going to quit in in a few months we've already had periods during the great recession like july where there was an ad a huge adding of jobs and then the next month the biggest the biggest exit so it's interesting what you're saying because in fact the vacancies have been in the hospitality and also in healthcare but and those are where you know the money has been going up too and you still have the vacancies and so 
prior to the pandemic, we were already hearing from people saying they didn't want their work and life determined by an algorithm so that they wouldn't know what shift they had to go work, say, as a barista or wherever. And it would change from, you know, day to day and week to week and you couldn't do childcare. And that, you know, hasn't really improved. And so that's really the question, I guess, because you said some are saying, well, four day week, that's Kickstarter. People who went through bruising unionization campaigns and were successful Mm -hmm. in not in not getting unions. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have all these strikes going on. So do you see and and maybe from even the people you were talking to that there's any long term or real effort to change the actual conditions that make these jobs burn you out and are so bad? Yeah, I did see change. I saw everyone was quitting because they tried to change their workplace and they couldn't. Everyone I talked to, like um, there was Ariana who worked at a cancer research center and she was having problems at her hospital around safety procedures already and trying to talk to employees. And there was a kind of way that the organization would tell them to deal with everything because they were a nonprofit. They took Medi-Cal. They're doing a good service. You should just be overworked because you're you're doing a good job. And it should be like your own uh, morality that drives you to work harder. And so nobody wanted to organize with her because you know, they were scared to lose that. And when COVID hit, they closed the break room. They made you wear masks. You had to stay six feet from each other. And then everything got worse. All the safety procedures got worse and there was no one you could talk to. And also organization has been hard. I I referenced in, in the last question that there's a different kind of worker in tech. They're highly educated. Some of the biggest drops in labor force participation in the last year and some of the biggest players in the great resignation have been people with a high school degree or lower. So Mm. what used to like grow the labor force was women entry into college and people of color's entry into college. And now we're seeing dips in college degrees and people entering college this year was, was lower. So that's pretty crazy. And then we also see teenage employment, teenage employment is growing And uh, I read this report on workplace hostility because I was really surprised when I was talking to each of these women how much they complained about their coworkers. Like, it's kind of hard to talk about, you know, we want to talk about like throw the bosses off your back and evil capitalism. But at the end of the day, what we bring to work is what happens to us and how psychologically damaged we are from showing up to a toxic workplace every day. Ariana called it a weird brain poison that, <laughs> that that gets in everyone's brain and makes them come back to work every day, even though they're ridiculously unhappy. And so it's pretty significant that you see high school kids entering the workforce or earlier and college entry going down. That means that we haven't seen the end of this and that it will only get harder to organize because this uh, report I saw about workplace hostility also focused on the loss of Older workers, like a lot of older workers are leaving. It's hard when you look at these different reports of the Great Resignation. I don't know where everyone's getting their numbers from. This doesn't actually seem right to me, but I saw somewhere that two-thirds of the people who are leaving are over 55. And a good portion of that is just like boomers getting out on the real estate boom, selling their houses and retiring early. But a lot of that is people getting aged out of the workforce and leaving without Social Security, without a secure retirement, without homeownership. And that's, that's a really dangerous situation. And it also makes workplaces more toxic because the younger the workforce, the more hostile it's going to be. That said, I think there are signs that the strike wave and the quit wave, which is what I prefer to call it, than the great resignation, that 
those things are kind of coming together. There was a walkout at a McDonald's in Bradbury, Pennsylvania last week that where all the workers left and put up a sign on the door that's like, we quit, we're not coming back. You see a lot of restaurants putting up signs on their door being like, we've had enough, we're not here, go away, we don't care. And I think sometimes like these virtual communities, like you see this, our anti-work community. And then also in my article, I talk about um, the quit your work TikTok was trending and everyone was doing these how to quit your job and like quit your job dances on TikTok that those can seem like just some internet trend that's blowing things out of proportion, but they're, they're mirroring other trends in society where people are kind of en masse coming to some realization about their workplace and about the life that they want. And it's, they're like talking to each other about it and then it grows. And I think we did see that with this, that once, once that woman quit Walmart and it went viral, there was just like a skyrocket and quits after that because it's contagious to take back a little piece of freedom. What's really good about this. And I guess it kind of fits with the last sort of topic question that I have. And that is like, you know, whether or not you see this as a kind of, blip or there's really going to be long-term prospects for this, let's call it move to recapture your life and, and some autonomy, but also some security. And so this is, of course, a question that nobody can really answer, but we can look at trends. You mentioned strikes are increasing. Unionization is still really hard and the cards are still stacked against it. In some ways, I I, I look at the big quit as a sort of sticking your middle finger up at these terrible conditions that that would have allowed people to at least bargain and fight like we saw in the last century. But now it's, it's so much more atomized and yet there's this solidarity and quitting in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, you know, you've talked to a really interesting cross-section of women in Los Angeles. And of course we've seen that, you know, women, overall have lost almost all of the gains that they made in the labor market since the 70s. And we've also seen that even though you had a centrist sort of president propose a really great package that included childcare and pre-K and all the rest of it, never enough, but my God, a huge change, you know, in a different direction. And then you get the same status quo politician saying, can't afford it. Oh no. And it'll you know, or Manchin says it'll create this entitlement mentality, which he dared to say while driving a Maserati and living on a yacht. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, there's just I, I guess I want you to reflect and and speculate, you know, about where you think this might go. Yeah, I think one thing that's really cool about this moment is that, like, I often look at inequality from the perspective of like the suicide epidemic and like the psychological impact of inequality. And so we usually have to say like, oh, the suicide epidemic is bad for people who are less educated, lower class, low wage workers. And here we have to like change our whole language because we're not anymore talking about how inequality affected people. Those of us on the lower end of the spectrum, we're talking about how people responded to it, how they decided that like they're going to change their life and in a way like I don't mean to be bleak but I guess I'm going to be bleak for a second but like because of the atomization of the workforce and the way society is now like suicide and quitting your job are kind of like these two options on the table for not wanting to go to work the next day (laughs) they're like because yeah we have a rise in union and we have 
and union participation. And we have these other forms of community, many of which are online, but like there's the same push tendency from, from the labor market that creates these epidemics. And then, so also it's kind of the same impulse, but when you quit, you get to take your time back. It's not taken away. And I think that is like, I don't know. I'm just really excited to finally be talking about how people respond to inequality rather than how they're affected by it. And it is significant also because suicides have gone down in the last two years. So while quitting is going up, suicides are going down. And maybe that's a way the quit wave is, has some kind of pessimistic optimism written into it. (laughs) It's also exciting to be talking about the pandemic epiphany, not from a place of like, oh, we're all so traumatized, we all have PTSD, we're all anxious, but like, oh, dang, I like stole back a little slice of freedom. Like Brenda, she's like, she she like quit her job and just took her stimulus money and went to Mexico. She's like, this is a little taste of sweetness and luxury that an immigrant like me doesn't usually get. I'm going to go off for a few months and like have a good time. And when she came back, she went back to work in a restaurant and lasted two days and walked out again. And I just love these stories because I don't even think like when you think about it in the way of how, how much it's happening and how much it could change society, it's not really an epiphany, is it? Like an epiphany is kind of like a sudden little insight or like a recognition of something that you, you might not have noticed before. But when I talked to these women, it was like, this long-term mounting discouragement over how they were being forced to relate to themselves and their family and their minds and their bodies. And that I think will be harder for capital to recover from that said, I think probably, and most likely we will see recovery. Capital can handle informality. It can handle people doing a career change or taking gig work instead of working in a job or downshifting. So one of the things we're seeing is not great resignation, but the great reshuffling. Some people are calling it because you have nurses being like, you know what? I like, like one of the TikToks is this nurse who's like, it's this TikTok that would make a grown man cry. She's like got this sad music playing in the background. She's folding up her scrubs and she's saying a month ago, I had this mental health crisis and almost wanted to kill myself and almost took my life, but I decided to quit instead. And, and then she, she takes some other jobs. So that's downshifting. And the women in work report said that maybe one in four women in America are thinking about downshifting. Now this is the kind of thing that could make it a blip, right? But I just don't really see that happening because especially because of the K-shaped recovery that we're experiencing, which I talk about a little bit in my article, but is maybe just briefly I'll say is significant because it's a new shape of recovery. Like there's you recovery, there's me recovery when we have a recession and prices or certain industries, profit goes down, certain demographics have less access to the workforce and then they bounce back up with W. That's like when it happens twice. But a K-shaped recovery had to be invented a few months ago because it's never happened before. Because from this recession, what you're getting is just clearly, clearly stated, rich people are getting richer and poor people are getting poorer. And we haven't seen any recovery from that sense. So why in that context, in that type of economy, would people be given what they're asking for? More freedom, more time, more desire, more of a meaningful and beautiful life. Brilliant. And I I also love one other thing that you said, Chloe, because in a way, 
the I quit is a symbol of atomization, but it's an individual act with a social cause. Mm-hmm. And so and that's another way, another sweet little part of it. And I just want to thank you for writing this article and talking to these women and reporting it. And you can get it at lataco.com. That's l.a.taco.com. The article is called The Big Quit of 2021, as told by women of color in Los Angeles. Chloe Watlington, great L.A. writer. Welcome back to L.A. and all your writing. You can also find her work at The Baffler, Teen Vogue, and a bunch of other places, too. And Chloe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Susie. Thank you. And don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to be talking about the elections that are taking place in Chile on November 21st. That's in a week. And we last looked at Chile and did quite a few shows on it. But the last time was in May after a historic defeat for the right and an historic gain for the left, which we said at the time was thanks to the massive social protests of October 2019, and really thought at the time that that victory would have been unimaginable just two years before that, because after decades of defeats and the Pinochet dictatorship and then more decades of the center-right governance, the mobilized population won really big. And they defeated not only the right, but even the center left or the concertacion. So one of the huge demands that emerged from the massive protest movement of 2019, and that was before the pandemic lockdowns, so that also played a big role. But one of those demands that emerged was for a new constitution to replace the 1980 Pinochet constitution and to open up this deliberative process to develop a new constitution and have this new one be based on the guarantee of universal social rights, a break with any form of, let's call it, sham democracy, and the recognition that Chile is, in fact, a plurinational country. And then there's been a lot of developments since then, and our guest is going to help us understand all of them. But just suffice it to say that Piñera, the president of Chile who cannot run in the next one, was recently impeached but not removed. And you could say that the impetus, at least I think you can, from the struggle for the Constituent Assembly and the impeachment were all created by this massive movement from 2019. And as I just said, they achieved in a few months what the parties who managed the transition out of the dictatorship couldn't achieve in 30 years. And as I said, and Oscar will elaborate, that the defeat of the right was overwhelming. And there was a simple election, Oscar's going to go over it, over whether or not you approve or reject the right to have a new constitution. And the surprising thing that came out of that, and we talked about it here, was that this massive vote for delegates who came from feminist, environmental, and indigenous organizations and candidates. And they also had a rule baked into it that um, the constituents would have to have gender parity as well. So that's kind of a long introduction, and it doesn't even take us up to the present. But I'm so pleased to have Oscar Mendoza with us to bring us up to date and to really try to understand what's going on. Oscar is a social scientist. He's a Chilean. He lives in Scotland and has been there since he was exiled after the Pinochet coup in 1973. 
And Oscar has a specialized in international development. He's traveled both professionally, not extensively in Latin America and in Africa and Asia. And as I said, he arrived in Scotland as a political refugee. And Oscar, I can't tell you how pleased I am to have you with us today to unpack what looks like a very complex political process in Chile. Thank so you very much for that introduction, Susie. I am <laughs> extremely pleased to be able to contribute to your program, especially since the focus on Chile has been uh, taken away by much more important worldwide events, including COP26, which is just finished here in, in Glasgow, and the border dispute in Poland, and, and so on and so forth. However, and particularly for people with a progressive viewpoint, what is going on in Chile and the elections on Sunday the 21st are extremely important. I'm really glad you brought it up because I think, in fact, the environmental conference that has just come to an end actually has resonates for what's happening in Chile, as does uh, yeah, maybe not the border crisis per se, and it, but I'm glad you brought it up as well. But maybe you could pick up, you know, before we get into who are the candidates and what has happened, there, you know, from the October 2019 massive social movement, which I should say was met by pretty brutal repression because this is where Carmineros were shooting rubber bullets and deliberately blinding demonstrators. And it didn't work in the sense that it didn't quell the disapproval of the status quo and the desire to get rid of it. And then we went to the October 2020 election. And then I want you to kind of just outline the various elections and what they did to get us, I guess, up to July and then from July to now. Sure. It's actually quite simple and straightforward. Everything dates back to the social revolt. When the Chilean people said enough, enough of uh, inequality, of abuse, of, uh, of lack of rights, of extremely awful pensions for, for retired people, broken uh, education system, totally unequal and at the bad end, awful health service, and so on and so forth. So everything that has happened since, and especially the amazing result on the referendum, you know, deciding whether to have a new constitution or not, which was in October 2020, a year after the revolt, where 80% of those who voted supported the new constitution. So that, that was cataclysmic in a sense. Then we move on. The elections for the actual members of the Constituents Assembly in May this year. And another big surprise, because the, the forces of the right-wing coalition in government and their allies and supporters barely you know, managed to, to hold some of the seats and certainly couldn't achieve the one-third, which would have meant that they would have had a veto power over any decisions of the Constituent Convention as it's called. So that, that was cataclysmic once more. And then we had the official primaries. The main blocks selected their presidential candidates for next Sunday. And, and there we had basically two blocks competing. The other political forces either didn't get organized in time or failed to do deals to be participants in the legal primaries. Basically, the, the government coalition, the right wing, came up with a big surprise again, 
an independent but supported by, by the President Pinera and so on, gained half of the votes and defeated very easily the traditional long-standing perennial even candidate of the right wing, Joaquin Lavin of the UDR. Which everybody thought, I should just interject, you know, would be the natural successor to Pineda, but even to the right. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and the opinion polls, which unfortunately in Chile, and not only in Chile, but particularly in Chile, have been terribly wrong with their forecast. They mm. predicted that Lavin would win quite easily. But the same surprise came about in the primary of the left-wing bloc, which is a combination of the broad uh, Frente Amplio and the Communist Party of Chile, with smaller forces involved. In Chile, in the, in the legal primary, it's similar, I think, to the situation in the States. Party members plus independents are able to vote. And in the left, uh, on the left, rather, Gabriel Boric, a 35-year-old, uh, representing the Frente Amplio, won very comfortably the primary. I want to, like, pause a moment on that, because here again, you know, what you're saying, Oscar Mendoza, about the polls being wrong, and then, of course, watching it from, you know, thousands of miles away, where I'm essentially and others were looking at the debates on, for us, the left-wing newspapers, and it looked very much like the other candidate was going Daniel to be Halloway. Yeah, yeah, Halloway, who is the mayor of Recoleta, right? That he was the one that was going to win. And this was a surprise. And also a surprise about who Boric was because he doesn't come from Santiago or even what? Even uh, Concepcion. He comes, maybe fill us in about no, no. everything no, that's surprising about him. Well, it's very surprising in many ways. I mean, Boric is very young. That's the yeah. first thing. It's the youngest presidential candidate by far. Uh, secondly, he comes from Magallanes. He comes from Punta Arenas, the end of the world, in a sense. Right. A very remote and isolated region in the country. And also, he rose to prominence as a student leader. He was one of the famous student leaders of the 2000s and plus. And he came to prominence along other representatives of the university federations who are also in Congress at the moment. But Boric got a resounding victory because he polled a million votes, just over a million votes out of 1.7. So 300,000 votes more than Hadley, totally unexpectedly. And that threw everything. All the chess pieces were thrown in the air and, and have fallen whatever uh, so, since. And then you had a, a similar upset for the centre and the right. Uh, I mean, you know, what followed was the, the former concertacion, the old alliance that really managed the transition the first 20 years uninterruptedly, and, and then another couple of periods. So the concertacion, there are deep divisions because it's mainly composed nowadays of the Christian Democratic Party, the Socialist Party, Allende's whole party, and the Radical Party, which is a social democratic force in spite of, of its name. And there was attempts for the socialists to actually join the primary of the left, which failed at the very last minute because the, the Communist Party vetoed uh, one of their allies, the Party for Democracy, the PPD. So they were unable to have a legal primary. They went for a citizen's consultation which was very, very poorly <laughs> attended in a sense. They were very 
very few people took part, about 150,000 in comparison to the 1.7 million of Boric's primary. But they selected the then president of the Senate, Jasna Prawosti, the only woman candidate. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where, where we are. Although there are seven candidates in total, apart from those three that represent significant political forces, the fourth important candidate is the Pinochet legacy candidate, Jose Antonio Cast, who is seen by many has been even beyond extreme right and has been often called a Nazi and a fascist because of his very extreme political views. And so he's just, far to the right of the uh, Pinero block, right? The, the, absolutely. The, so that would have been Lavigne, Pinera, and this guy, maybe you should explain, Sichel. Yeah, Sichel is really an independent. You know, the candidate of the governing block is an independent who has moved from party to party, at the moment independent. But okay. he tends to be a kind of a more liberal type. He doesn't have any close associations with the dictatorship, etc. Cast, okay. on the other hand, just you know, a couple of days ago, was defending the Pinochet dictatorship to foreign correspondents in a, <laughs> in a, in a, in a press conference. So, you know, it's, it's very, very unusual. So I have to ask you coming out of that, that everything that you've described and that I laid out in the earlier part was that we've had this tremendous dynamism for the left in Chile since October 2019. And then, of course, there was the pandemic and it hit Chile especially hard and it's not over yet. And it's had an impact on the economy, politics, just as it has elsewhere. So how is it then that you're you see emerging a candidate from the far right, who openly, as you said, Oscar Mendoza, is calling for a, a repeat of the Pinochet period without oh, shame. And he's, according to polls, which you say could be wildly off, that he's really, you know, the leading person, or is he? Yeah, I won't comment on the polls yet, but there are many reasons why a candidate such as Cast may be gaining a trap. The first one is that the enthusiasm of the protests of the Constitutional Convention referendum and then elections has taken a few blows. For example, La Lista del Pueblo, which was this independent left-wing coalition, absolutely disintegrated both within the Constitutional Convention and then in trying to field their own presidential candidate. It was embarrassing, really. They ended up being rejected by the electoral service in the most kind of infamous of ways. So that's had a big effect on the popular forces. Secondly, there's been a veritable campaign of terror on the part Mm. of the rights and the media, which is controlled by the rich and powerful in Chile, not only in Chile, but particularly in Chile. So that El Mercurio, for example, the leading newspaper, constantly attacking the Boric campaign, and accusing them of being communists, of being extremists, and so on. In spite of the fact that if you look at the Boric program, it's very much what Europeans would consider a social democratic you know, platform. There is also mm. events within Chile that are affecting the campaign, in particular, the degree of conflict and violence in the southern regions of Bio Bio and Los Rios, 
where the indigenous Mapuche people live and which are today subject to militarization. It's virtually an armed force occupying the territory with checks and controls and so on. And very recently, personnel of the Navy killed a completely innocent Mapuche bystander who was in, in his home and presented it as a fight, as an armed fight between the, the Mapuche and, and the armed forces, which is totally false. But, you know, if you repeat a lie you know, frequently, people tend to think it's true. There's also the international context. You know, the Boris coalition, with strong support from the communists, has been rocked by events around Ortega's re-election in Nicaragua. The Chilean Communist parties come out, you know, strongly in favor and congratulating Ortega. You know, a person that we all know is a temple dictator in, in, you know, in anything by name. You arrested know, all, all of his opponents. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All credible opposition candidates are in jail, apart from, you know, hundreds of other activists and so on. Those of us who know Nicaragua well, and I traveled extensively during the Sandinista period and, and beyond, you know, and not only in the capital, but, you know, in the regions and the Atlantic coast, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know that the, the old Sandinistas are, are no longer with, with Ortega because he's completely betrayed the ideals of the revolution and his use, his position to enrich himself and his family and to have almost complete power. So Boric had to very quickly come out and disavow, you know, and say that he he did not believe that Nicaragua that were free and democratic elections, and that he didn't care who his statements bother or not. But he would say, whatever and whoever, where there was no democracy and no human rights, he would denounce it. So, so that's a, that was good. But are you saying that this cost him? Well, it cost him in the sense that. Ever since the communists came in support of Ortega's win, the whole of the media and all the rest of the candidates, not only the right, have been attacking Boric and saying, well, what are you? Are you with the communists and Ortega or are you the Democrat? Etc., etc., etc. So it's been damaging. And lastly, a real problem for Boric, perhaps, is that he's been subjected to an accusation of sexual harassment by a woman member of his coalition. He denies strenuously the accusations and nothing is known about them yet. But all those things have contributed, in a sense, to a climate of is it the right person, is perhaps too young, is perhaps too immature, because he certainly was the leading candidate and the man to beat before any of this. But given how politicized Chile has been traditionally, and maybe, you know, the 40 years of dictatorship dampened it somewhat, but it certainly came roaring back, as we saw in these worldwide protests that, you know, in Chile, we had some of our best and biggest examples in October 2019. And given that in all these elections that you've mentioned, including the striking recognition that the original peoples, the Mapuche, the indigenous people should have a seat at the table, a big seat at the table in writing the new constitution. And the sympathy that I think, you know, maybe I'm wrong to read, but over what's going on in the mining regions and in Bio Bio, as you mentioned, and this even plays into uh, Pineda's trouble that maybe you should talk about, that it seems like these missteps by Boric would not be enough to make the population say, okay, well, we'll back the Pinochet guy. 
Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, but my judgment is that the polls will be wrong, will be proved wrong once more. And it's quite likely that Boric will have the first place in the first round on Sunday. That's my feeling. Because as you say, political and social movements don't change tack from one week to another, from one month to another. These are long processes. And the people of Chile have spoken very clearly. They want change. They want a new constitution and they want public services that will make their lives better. And that's what... And fortunately uh, for Boric, just in, in the past little while, uh, cast the supposed leader in the polls, you know, the extremists and so on, has mounted the defense of the Pinochet government. When talking about Nicaragua, he said, in Chile, it wasn't like Nicaragua under Pinochet. The opponents were not detained. Listen to this. Opponents were not detained. And secondly, they held free democratic elections. (laughs) Oscar, if I asked... If we were video and I asked you to lift up your shirt, I think the scars would say differently. Well, you know, uh, uh, even official government commission reports state that there were officially over 30,000 people detained and tortured. Well over 3,000 people killed, over 1,000 people disappeared, and countless other abuses of human rights. So that is utter nonsense, and anyone who's read a little bit of history will know that. But the funny thing is that he also referred to democratic elections being held by the dictatorship. In seven years, we only had a, a referendum that said no to Pinochet, and then the presidential election that you know opened up the democratic path for Chile. So that has been very damaging for Cast, and uh, basically he's shown for what it is. You know, he's taken off his mask and he's showing he's the Pinochet successor. So So now uh, I think, Oscar, you should explain for our listeners, just because it's a little complex. We have more than two candidates, even though there's two main coalitions that you've talked about. But there's these other candidates who are in there and there's been a lot of surprises. So when people go to the polls next Sunday on the 21st of November, is this the final general election or the first of a, that will then determine a runoff? Can you explain the rules and what's happening sure. next? The rules in Chile are that for the presidential election and also for other uh, posts, if the candidate does not reach 50% plus one vote, there is a runoff between the two leading candidates. So we have seven candidates in total. I'm not even going to refer to the other three, I think we need to avoid wasting time and concentrate on the main four. So Sebastian Sichel for the governing coalition, Boric for the left-wing coalition, Jasna Proboste for the old concertación, so kind of center-left in a sense, and José Antonio Cas for the extremist right-wing Republican Party, funnily enough. So what's happened is that the official coalition, governing coalition, it started withdrawing its support for Sichel some weeks ago, and that support has gone to cast. So parliamentary representatives of the UDI mainly, they have declared openly and, and freely that they are no longer supporting their official candidate, but they are supporting cast. And that has created absolute chaos in the right. And that's why I think after the defeat the right suffered in the referendum, of October 2020, 
In the May elections for the Constitutional Convention, where they were really very badly beaten, this cannot help cast that much. Because people confronted with somebody who is speaking well of the dictatorship is not going to perform well with the vast majority of Chileans. From there, maybe you should talk a little bit more about you know this surprise and whether or not the uh, leak from the Pandora Papers, which has had a direct implication for Chile, has anything to do with where the polls are right now. Well, absolutely, absolutely. Sebastián Sichel is Piñera's candidate, and Piñera was impeached just there at the beginning of the week by the lower house because of the Pandora Papers revelation that he had secretly in the British Virgin Islands completed the sale of a mining interest that his family held. And this was not done either completely legally and certainly not transparently in any sense. So So this is like the Americans. He's been impeached but not removed. Absolutely. To be removed, Pineda would need to lose the impeachment vote in the Senate. And in the Senate the majority requires two-thirds of serving senators, which the opposition does not have. There are enough senators of the governing coalition to impede the approval of the impeachment articles. So Piñera will not be removed. But the embarrassment and the political damage done by the impeachment process is obviously affecting not only the presidential candidate, Cisho, but also the parliamentary lists. Because in Chile, apart from the presidential election on Sunday, we have parliamentary elections, congressional elections, and even you know local government elections. And in there, the blocks compete. So if your block is divided and then so on, you might do much worse than, than you thought you would. And that could favor the left, progressive forces in general. Something I read about, you know, some analysis recently indicated that out of the five senators to be elected in the metropolitan region of Santiago, because of the divisions and the animosity on the right, there could be four opposition senators elected and only one of the right-wing governing coalition. And that would be utter disaster for Piñera and Isabel. So there's a lot of surprises in store. And- From everything that you've said, Oscar Mendoza, it's just that this dynamic that we began with has been all in favor of the left, but surprisingly moved in the last, what, three or four months may not at all be, you know, what we'll see next week. And of course, nobody can look inside a crystal ball. But what you're showing and saying is that all of these factors, including the impeachment, including Cust's open calling back to the Pinochet regime and talking about repression and the other things all have all come together to really cast out on what is going to happen. But I wanted to ask you now, and I'm glad you brought up that this is not just a presidential election, but also parliamentary, but we can't get into all the details of that. It's a lot to keep track of, but what else has happened with Boric that when he, you say came out a million votes ahead and seemed to really have all the momentum but then has not been performing as well. So what's happened there? Well, I think I think what it showed four months of campaigning since the victorious primary election, they had the Frente Amplio and, and, and the Communist Party and the, the people supporting the bloc on the left, 
you know, in really high spirits has been a combination of, you know, some poor performances during debates and interviews. Uh, for example, Boric has not been good enough in terms of his command of the figures, you know, of the numbers. And in the end, you have to pay for everything, Susie. All your plans have to have a budget that supports it and so on. Although the program, if you read it, the 53 measures of the Boric program are incredibly positive and really try to address the main demands of the Chilean people. And their tax plans and investment plans actually make absolute sense. You know, those kind of little gaps here and there have not helped. The international situation, you know, showing up the divisions in the on the left as well, they haven't helped. However, I strongly believe that Boric is still the man to beat. And I think that on Sunday, he will come out as the number one candidate and should cast, for whatever reason, beat you know, his right-wing adversary to second place because really everyone assumed the Seychelles would be second in the first round. I think then you would join in of all progressive forces in Chile, you know, everyone against cast, and they would support Boric in a second round. Even though there are some anti-system forces and some, you know, remnants of the old disease, Lista del Pueblo, and some other so-called radical left movements that don't support Boric and are saying that they would never vote for Boric. So it's very complex. But I think we just have to stay up <laughs> until the, the early results come out and, and the early exit polls, and, and then we'll know better. But until then, I would put my hands on the fire other than to say, that I'm still confident that the Chilean people want change and Boric is the best representation of that change. So just fire, because this has been terrific. What would be the conditions in which there would not be a runoff? Is it also possible that next Sunday will be the determinant election? It's highly unlikely because of the segmentation of the political blogs and political parties. Uh, first of all, there are too many candidates. And even if the smaller candidates only reach 5% say of the vote. That's a significant number or a significant percentage if you consider the total. It's much more likely that the leading candidates will be scoring in the 20s, you know, 25%, say 23%. And it's even possible that someone reaching 15% of the vote in the first round could still make it to the second round if the others are very similar in their support level. So, you know, I don't like crystal balls. I'm just going with uh, some kind of sense of, of what the, the political and social movements have been doing over the last two years. And that gives me, you know, a degree of confidence that eventually Boric should be and would be the next president. Oscar Mendoza, thank you so much. What you've really done is pretty amazing because it's a complex two-year period that we've been discussing and a lot of developments, and you a very clear framework that I think people even who are not following or haven't followed it are able to understand. And of course, I'm going to open the invitation to discuss the results afterwards. So until that time, people just have to hang on, listen to the news, watch the news, and let's see what transpires on November 21st. But thank you so much for doing all of that, Oscar Mendoza. Thank you, Susie. 
Thank you. And Oscar is a social scientist. He specialized in international development, traveled extensively in the Americas and in Africa and Asia, always doing amazing work, and came to Scotland as a political refugee from Pinochet's dictators. And of course, like most Chileans in exile, and even more so in Oscar's case, has his pulse on everything that's happening there. Thanks so much, Oscar. 